Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode From Second Avenue to Times Square, How the Yiddish Theater Influenced Broadway, Part 1. Today, my guest is the acclaimed actor, singer, writer, producer, and director Avi Hoffman, who specializes in Jewish culture and Yiddish theater. His long-running off-Broadway Two Jewish trilogy has been seen by millions on PBS and at theater venues around the world. And in 2016, he received rave reviews and a Drama Desk nomination for his performance as Willie Loman in the Yiddish-language production of Death of a Salesman. He's also the founder and CEO of the Yiddishkeit Initiative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to preserving Jewish culture, about which you'll hear much more later in the episode. Nearly 3.5 million Jews emigrated to the United States between 1881 and 1925, and even more than the synagogue or social clubs, the Yiddish theater became the meeting place and the forum of the Jewish community in America, and it was wildly popular. In 1927, there were 24 Yiddish theaters across America, and most of those located on 2nd Avenue, known as the Yiddish Rialto on the Lower East Side. The Yiddish theater was attended by rich and poor, educated and illiterate, religious and free-thinking, and most importantly for our purposes, it was attended by Irving Berlin and George and Ira Gershwin and Yip Harburg, Fanny Bryce, and many, many more of the inventors of the Broadway musical who grew up smack in the center of the Yiddish theater district. I have long known that the Yiddish theater had a tremendous impact on the Broadway musical, but surprisingly little has been written or documented about that impact. I'm hoping to talk with other experts like Avi on future episodes of Broadway Nation. My first question for Avi was a very basic one. What exactly is Yiddish? Welcome, Avi. Thank you so much for joining us today on Broadway Nation. It's my pleasure and my honor. Thank you. We have to start with the language, Yiddish. When you say Yiddish theater, the word that comes to mind is Yiddish. And so what is Yiddish exactly? So a lot of people think of Yiddish as this kind of funny language that old Jews spoke, and it was all about laughter and funny and being sticky and, you know, schmaltzy. 
The truth of the matter is that Yiddish is actually a very sophisticated and old language that's over a thousand years old. It started as a way for the Jews in the high mountains of Germany to communicate with each other in a way that was unique to them. So they incorporated the High Germanic, the Hoichdeutsch, with the Hebrew that they used in their prayers. Because Hebrew, at that time, a thousand years ago, and up until very recently, really, up until the 1880s and the modern Hebrew language, was considered what we say in Yiddish, Loshn Koidish, the holy tongue. So you could not use Hebrew in everyday life because it was holy, and you should only use it for praying and in the synagogue. So you couldn't go shopping and use Hebrew. That is correct. You were not supposed to use any Hebraic language elements in your everyday normal life. And so in order to create a way for them to communicate with each other, they took the German, they took elements of Hebrew, and Germanicized them, Ashkenized them, Matana. That's a Hebrew word for a present, a gift. But in Yiddish, it became matonin. And so it wasn't exactly Hebrew, but it was Hebraic element that became a part of the Yiddish language. Now, let's jump fast forward a little bit, just the Cliff Notes version of all this. The Jews then began to travel all over the world. They were peddlers. They were traders. They were working in banking, and they were moneylenders. Shakespeare, of course, and Merchant of Venice, the great Shylock. You know, well, the Jews were not allowed to do anything else except lend money. And so they became moneylenders. They became craftsmen, tradesmen. Wherever they traveled, they incorporated elements of the languages where they were. So people don't realize that just like English and just like every other language, Yiddish is a fusion language, which incorporated primarily Germanic elements, Hebraic elements, but then the Slavic elements from Russia and Poland and Lithuania and Romania, Czechoslovakia, all the Romance languages, Latin, French, Spanish. People don't realize that words like in Yiddish, anyone who speaks Yiddish will know, I'm going to daven, I'm going to pray, davenin, davenin, I'm going to pray. Well, davenin is a Yiddish word that comes from the Latin divinus, davenin, divinus, holy, benedicere in Latin, right? That's a blessing. Well, in Yiddish, it became benchen. I'm going to bench, ich gehe benchen. So there were elements of all the other languages. Turkish, there's a very known Yiddish word. And in English, of course, people say it. I'm wearing my yarmulke, right? My little, you know, uh, uh, skullcap. Well, a yarmulke is a very unique sounding word in Yiddish. It's very different than all the other words because it comes from Turkey. It's a Turkish element in Yiddish. So there were Arabic influences, there were Spanish influences, and Yiddish became this brilliant thousand-year-old language that created an entire body of literature and poetry and music and prayer and business. There were diaries kept in the 1600s, the 1500s, the 1400s of people in Yiddish talking about their lives. And so I could go on and on, but let us jump ahead to where it connects to the subject at hand. You just mentioned music. 
So at the same time that this language is spreading all across the world, basically, or at least all the, across the Jewish world, is there music that's also going with them and picking up on all these other influences? Yes, the answer is absolutely. The origins of Yiddish theater really start mostly in the 1600s, which I guess is around the time when theater, you know, in general was starting to find it, you know, an opera. So the Jews, of course, were exposed just like everybody else, to the different influences. And so there became a movement which was called the Broderzinger. It originated in a town called Brod, and there were these singers and musicians who started developing a repertoire. And then they started traveling because people would say, hey, we're going to have a wedding. Why don't you come and play at our wedding? And why don't you come here? And why don't you play there? And on Friday nights, and they needed to make money. So they'd sit out in the city plaza and play music and people would throw a groschen or a ruble or whatever. Just like a wedding band today. Just in a way like wedding bands today. So they started traveling around Europe and spreading the music that was being developed at the same time. You know, what we today call klezmer, well, klezmer is two Hebrew words, clay, zemel, instruments of song, instruments of sound, of music. And so the klezmer were these traveling musicians and singers that would play mostly religious-themed prayers, but then they started getting jazzy, and then they started getting influenced by the gypsy music and the other music. And once again, the fusion of the music and the influences of opera, of different classical music, and of course there were Jewish classical composers who also found their voices. There was secularism, there was orthodoxy, and the two were kind of meeting in the world of the musicians and the actors who were traveling around. Now we fast forward to the 1880s. There was a gentleman in Romania who actually was in Yas, Romania. Yasi, I guess is how we pronounce it here, but we knew it as Yas. His name was Abraham Goldfart, and he was very influenced by the opera that he was seeing all around Europe in Vienna, and he was very influenced by it. And so he decided to create a Yiddish operetta. The Sorceress was the first Yiddish show. That was the English name of it. And he incorporated elements of what he was hearing in the secular world, but he used the Yiddish language. And it was melodramatic, and there was a witch, and there was a ingenue, and her love interest, the handsome young man, and all the townspeople, and the witch was trying. I mean, it became this very beautiful melodramatic program. The characters were Jewish characters? The characters were Jewish characters speaking in Yiddish, singing. It was an operetta, so it was all in song. Kim, Kim, Kim Tzimie, Kim Tzimie. Kim, Kim, that's the witch, obviously. It's Disney. I mean, it might as well be one of the great witch stories of Disney. And that's probably where they got most of these things anyway, from the fables and the, the old stories. Goldfaden revolutionized everything. And in my opinion, in many ways, and I taught a course about this at the University of Miami, that he really changed the world. With that one show, he changed the world. He just didn't know it at the time, and it took about a hundred years for it to really take hold. He was a composer and a lyricist? 
composer, lyricist, producer, director. He just did every, he put it all together. He was the father of Yiddish theater. And it became very popular in Romania, in Yas. And then it started to travel. People were so amazed by this new way of Yiddish music and singing and the storylines and the excitement. And he began touring. And of course, once you do something, other people want to copy it. And so now there were other writers in the 1880s, the 1890s, who started to create different works of Yiddish music. in Moscow, the Moscow Art Theater. You have the great Stanislavski starting to come up with concepts. You know, and I'm talking about 1880s, 90s, early 1900s. And so Yiddish theater suddenly became more than just an operetta. It became a program. It became a translation of Shakespeare. It became a translation of Chekhov. Well, there were a lot of Jews working with Stanislavski in Moscow Art Theater. Chagall comes to mind. Chagall was designing sets for Stanislavski and then for the Yiddish theater. So now there were stars of the Yiddish theater and there were performers and singers and actors and all these amazing talents. Now, at the exact same time, you have an exodus from Europe, from Russia, from the Pale of Settlement. There were pogroms. These Jews were feeling persecuted. So many of them, a million of them, decided to do whatever they could. Anna Tefka, Anna Tefka, you're going to America? Yes, I have an uncle in Chicago. All right, fiddler on the roof. So now they're coming to America. Well, what a fertile ground. The Yiddish theater takes hold, plants seeds on the lower east side of New York. 
And now they're performing these Yiddish theater shows in New York for the immigrants who are now coming, who saw it in Europe, and now they want to see it again. It's really inexpensive. It's like a nickel, and you can go see a show all day long. There's a matinee and an evening and another performance. They bring their lunch. They bring their kids. They come and shout at the stage. And now you have these Yiddish theater stars. Boris Tomaszewski, Jacob P. Adler, Maury Schwartz. The list goes on. Bessie Tomaszewski and Molly Pecan eventually. Jenny Goldstein, and all these amazing personalities who become the stars of the Yiddish theater. This is before Broadway. There are suddenly dozens and dozens of Yiddish theaters sprouting up where people would go to learn how to become American. Why do I say that? Because now the subject material became about Jews immigrating to America and how did they get along? De Grine Cousine. Grine was a word that means green, greenhorn. In English, it became greenhorn. Well, that meant not right. That meant someone who was an immigrant, who didn't speak the language, who didn't know. Right off the boat. David Henry Huang wrote a very famous play called Fresh Off the Boat, F-O-B, all about the Asian immigrants. Well, every immigrant society did the same thing, and the Jews are no exception. The only difference is they went to the theater, and now they get to watch themselves on the stage, adapting to life in America. Don't go away, there's more of Broadway Nation right after this short break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These 
their no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com slash BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation, BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And you had two different kinds of Yiddish theater. You had Kunst, high art, Chekhov, Shakespeare, the great theater, the great tragedies, the great comedies, the French farces, all translated into Yiddish. And then you had Schund, which was basically vaudeville, the vaudeville, the burlesque. You know, we're talking about a same era where all of these different elements were percolating within the societies. And Jews, just like everybody else, would go to the burlesque or go to the vaudeville, incorporate elements, comedy, musical comedy. Ich sing für euch jetzt ein Lied, Hutzatza, Hutzatza. Ich glaub, das Liedl sehr geht, Hutzatza, Hutzatza. Ob das Liedl wird gefällt, Hutzatza, Hutzatza, weil ich euch zufriedenstellen. Hutzatza, Hutzatza, geendigt hab ich schon mein Lied, Hutzatza, Hutzatza. In euch, das macht euch Appetit, Hutzatza, Hutzatza. Ob ihr werdet das Liedl gleichen, Hutzatza, Hutzatza. Könnt ihr alle allein machen, Hutzatza, Hutzatza. And now it starts to evolve. So here we are, 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s. Yiddish theater is the biggest thing going. The actors in the Yiddish theater decide they need to unionize. So they create the first ever actors union in America called the Hebrew Actors Union. Even though they weren't speaking Hebrew, they were Hebrews, right? (laughs) Jews were referred to in different ways. That was the basis for what eventually became actors' equity. The association. And interestingly enough, several, must have been 10, 15 years ago, the Actors' Equity put out a press release saying they were the first actors' union in America. (laughs) And I literally called Patrick Quinn, who was a friend of mine. He was the president of the union. And I said, Patrick, listen, I love you, but you got to change that because it's not. The Hebrew Actors' Union was the first actors' union in America. But sort of ironic because wasn't Theo Bekel the president of Equity for quite a long time? He was not only the president of Equity, he was the president of what was called 
called the Four A's, the Association of Actors and Artists of America, which was the union umbrella for all the actors' unions, including SAG and AFTRA and AGVA and all the others. But once again, the early 1900s, late 1880s, saw the labor movement start. The Triangle Fire, the Cloakmakers Union, the, the unions that were protecting the sweatshop workers. And all of that was happening at the same time. That was the basis of what was to come, which then evolved into what we now know as Broadway and more. I taught a course at the University of Miami called Yiddish Theater, the Foundation of Modern Culture. And my hypothesis is very simple. You cannot look at what we think of today as modern culture, from Broadway to Hollywood to music to comedy to almost every element of what we think of as mainstream culture. All of these things evolved out of the movement of Yiddish language and Yiddish theater from the turn of the century into the 1940s, 50s. So let me back you up just a little bit before we get into all that. Describe Second Avenue. Second Avenue becomes the center of Yiddish theater in the world, would you say, or certainly in America? Absolutely in the world. Now, having said that, let me qualify that. There was an enormous circuit of Yiddish theater all over the world. You could, as an actor, and many of them did, travel all over the world doing Yiddish theater. There was all of Europe, all of South America, obviously the Palestinian era at the time, and eventually Israel, South Africa, Australia, wherever the Jews lived who spoke Yiddish, which was everywhere, Yiddish theater would find a home, especially in Central and South America. And there are many stories that I could talk to you about that are South American Yiddish theater stories. Fascinating. And London as well. London, well, all of Europe. I mean, every yeah, yeah. major urban center, absolutely London. As a matter of fact, Israel Zangwill, going back hundreds of years, was doing Yiddish-oriented and Jewish-oriented. The King of Schnorrers was a great essay that he wrote that eventually became the musical that Judd Walden composed, The King of Schnorrers. But New York, Second Avenue was the epicenter because there were 20, 30, 40 Yiddish theaters just on Second Avenue, just in the Lower East Side. And now that doesn't even count Brooklyn and the Bronx and Queens, where other Yiddish theaters were popping up. And primarily because the Hebrew Actors Union was so difficult to get into, younger actors like Fivish Finkel or Mickey Katz, for that matter, they wouldn't let him in the union. So they had to go perform in the Bronx, in non-union houses, or in Cleveland, or in Philadelphia. And so now there was an American circuit of Yiddish theater. And Canada, Montreal had a large Yiddish-speaking community, Toronto, Winnipeg, Vancouver, London, Ontario. I mean, it's really fascinating. When you look at the entire picture of Yiddish theater, the circuit was enormous, very expensive, and global. And in New York on the scale of Broadway, but on 2nd Avenue on the Lower East Side. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that certainly for its time, the Yiddish theater far surpassed Broadway mm -hmm. in terms of attendance, in terms of, look, when the Yiddish stars were at their apex, 
their fans used to have fights in the streets because they would say, Maury Schwartz is the greatest actor. No, Boris Tomaszewski is better than Maury. And they would fight each other and actually have physical fisticuffs about who the greatest Yiddish theater actors. That's how dedicated they were. When Sholem Aleichem passed away, and Sholem Aleichem, of course, was one of the greatest, most, probably the most well-known of Yiddish writers who began in Russia writing in Russian, and he couldn't make it in Russian, so he started writing in Yiddish. And then he became, of course, Sholem Aleichem, who brought us Tevye, the dairyman who brought us Fiddler on the Roof. When Sholem Aleichem died, 250,000 people went out in the streets to follow his coffin to his funeral. Yeah, that doesn't happen today. Stephen Sondheim, Oliver Sholem, just passed away. And hundreds of thousands of people all over the world mourn him and will continue to mourn him forever. But I didn't see 250,000 people out in the street going to the funeral. So these stars were everything in a way. Who were the big musical stars and what made them such a sensation? Well, I've already mentioned Jacob P. Adler, Boris Tomaszewski, Maury Schwartz, then eventually Molly Pecans, the great Jenny Goldstein. And they all sang. They were all triple threats and they all wanted to be dramatic actors and they all wanted to do musicals. and They all wanted to show off how great they were. I think that's something unique. They did everything. There was no line between a, a legitimate actor and a musical actor. They were the producers. They were the directors. They were the stars. They were the set design. I mean, they did everything, which was, yes, you're right. That was very unique. Katja fights of the world. She freights of the world was it you get. Katja tanced in the sing. She freights of the spring in the lead. Gebenkt a bit of ständig noch mein Fatinka. A freilige je soy mir doch gradinka. of the Yiddish theater, the decline of the Yiddish theater came along in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. They were still holding on. Those who were still around, Ben Bonus. I worked with Ben Bonus in 1981. And this is actually very indicative of early Yiddish theater. These stars were very reluctant to give up any of their stardom. And so what ended up happening, they were getting older and older, but they still wanted to play the young love interest (laughs) and the young ingenues. So along came actors like Muni Weisenfreund, who eventually became Paul Muni. He was a Yiddish theater actor, Edward G. Robinson. The list is endless, of course. But when he showed up to Jacob P. Adler's theater, the art theater, they said, wait a minute, you're a young guy. You're very talented, but you can't play the young lead. So you're going to play the 80-year-old rabbi. 
So there are books written about Paul Muni. He actually wrote a great biography, which I would love to turn into a theater piece. Maybe you and I can work on this together someday. And if you haven't read it, you should, because it's brilliant. And he talks about how here he was, 22 years old, and he's got to put himself into old age makeup because the star <laughs> wants to play the young love interest. And this was an ongoing issue, which in some ways led to the eventual demise of Yiddish theater as well. Interestingly enough, as I jump forward for a moment, in 1981, when I had come back to the United States after I had spent nine years in Israel, and I started in the Yiddish theater as a child when I was 10, when I came back and finished college and wanted to go back to New York and restart my career in America, Ben Bonus called me, said, I want you to play the lead role in my new play, The Blacksmith's Daughter. And I'm thought, okay, great, that's great. The young love interest, the young man, handsome. Not that that was me, but, you know, close <laughs> enough. But I spoke Yiddish. And in the 1980s, anybody who spoke Yiddish could be a Yiddish theater actor because there was a dearth of Yiddish-speaking actors. When I arrived to the first day of rehearsal, I hadn't gotten a script yet. I asked Ben for a script. He said, listen, I've been thinking, I'm not sure my audience is ready to see a show where I am not playing the lead role, so you're <laughs> going to play the 80-year-old bookseller. And there I was with Paul Muni in the Yiddish theater, 80 years later, playing the 80-year-old bookseller in what was left of the Yiddish theater in the 1980s. But now, just jumping backwards in time, the Yiddish theater then became the source, the roots of all of those creative forces. So when you're Irving Berlin's and you're George Gershwin's and you're Hammerstein's, just about everybody who was Jewish went to see the Yiddish theater. Most of them either, like Berlin, immigrants from Russia themselves or the children of immigrants. All of them mm -hmm. came from not only the world of the Lower East Side, but actually from the shtetls in the old country. And they all spoke Yiddish or they all understood Yiddish. And they went to the Yiddish theater and they were influenced by the music, the sound, the drama, the acting. And now they started to branch out. So Irving Berlin brings us Tin Pan Alley. You know, he wrote Cohen owes me $97. Old man Rosenthal lay sick in bed. Soon the doctor came around and said, no use crying. The man is dying. He can't live very long. Soon his son was sitting by his bed. What's the matter, Papa dear, he said. The old man said, my son, before my days are done, I want you to know Cohen owes me $97 And it's up to you to see that Cohen pays I sold a lot of goods To Rosenstein and Sons On an I.O.U. for 90 days Don't give Levy Brothers any credit they owe me for a hundred yards of lace If you promise me, my son You'll collect from everyone I can die with a smile upon my face 
when you look at Irving Berlin's earlier works, before he became Irving Berlin, what you find is a lot of what I call the transition into Yinglish where Yiddish and English started to combine into a new fusion, which brought us Tin Pan Alley, early Broadway musicals. The influence, not only of the Jews, but on the non-Jews. I think there's a famous old story about Noel Coward and the other non-Jewish composer. Cole Porter. Cole Porter, who basically said, I don't know how to write a hit. They said, just write Jewish music. And he became influenced, and there you go. So now you've got people going out to Hollywood to create movies. They were influenced by the Yiddish theater. So even though they were afraid to portray Jews necessarily in the mainstream, but then you have the jazz singer, right? You start to see the influence of the Yiddish mentality, the Yiddish sensibility in the work of the Ten Commandments. Now we're telling the biblical stories, but in English, but it's still the Jewish directors and the Jewish stars, Paul Muni, Edward G. Robinson, the list goes on and on. Now come back to Broadway. The influence begins to infiltrate on Broadway. The directors, the composers, the lyricists, and the actors, they want to be seen on the American stage. And now we start to get into how the Yiddish theater ended up becoming Broadway. And Avi Hoffman and I will continue the story of the Yiddish theater's influence on Broadway on the next episode of Broadway Nation. Watch your step, shake me Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. If you love this podcast and want to delve even deeper into the world of Broadway musicals, I invite you to become a member of the Broadway Nation Backstage Pass Club. For as little as $7 a month, members will receive exclusive access to never-before-heard, unedited versions of every Season 2 interview and many from Season 1 as well. I often record at least twice as much conversation as ends up in the public episodes, and this includes additional in-depth conversations with my frequent co-host, Albert Evans. You will also have the opportunity to ask us any questions about Broadway musicals that you would like to hear answered and to propose topics and subject matter that you would like me to cover, all of which I will incorporate into a special series of Ask Me Anything About Broadway episodes. Last, but certainly not least, you will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgement of your vital support for this podcast. To join, just click the link included in the show notes for this episode on our website at www.broadway-nation.com. That's broadway-nation.com. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. America, a land nothing, hurry up. Ain't a life in business, ain't a life in shop. Ain't a 
läuft in Store, einer läuft in Train. Einer läuft versetzen, sein Watch und Chain. Einer ist doch alle jeden Tag im Loch. Einer ist von Bagel, nach dem Loch. Einer läuft in Sinaplay, einer läuft in Cabaret. Einer läuft in Rosal, wo der Boy ist in Weihoi. Watch your step, schreit mir neues ganz plain. Watch your step, überall könnt ihr das sehen, in der Subway, in der Car. Haar euch, wenn er auf die Trepp, schreit einer euch mit dem ganzen Chor. Watch your step, watch your step, schreit mir neues ganz plain. Watch your step, überall könnt ihr das sehen, in der Subway, in der Car. Haar euch, wenn er auf die Trepp, schreit einer euch mit dem ganzen Chor. Watch your step, schreit einer euch mit dem ganzen Chor. Hey you, Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.